0: This is the British News, presenting the world to the world.
1: A medical officer with the British Ministry of Health is about to make a discovery that will fundamentally change the understanding of life on this planet. Frederick Griffith was a bacteriologist and a specialist in Streptococcus pneumoniae, as in pneumonia. Just ten years earlier, his lab had been taken over by the British government during the Great War. The cannons and gunfire eventually fell silent, but a new battle would begin, An influenza ripped across the globe, which, in addition to causing the viral flu, exacerbated bacterial pneumonia. On a mothball budget, Griffiths Lab's mission was to study the bacteria and viruses that were taking millions of lives. Griffith studied pneumonococcal samples, hoping to understand how we could better prepare ourselves from widespread diseases. So in January of 1928, he conducted an experiment. Pneumonia can take two forms, one that's more likely to cause disease than the other. He took the diseasey strain of the bacteria and heated it up until the bacterial colony died. Killing the colony should make it harmless. Then he gathered the other strain of pneumonia that was less likely to cause disease. Finally, he injected the two strains individually into mice. In both cases, the mice were fine. But then he combined the two strains. The mixed pneumonia was lethal. Sad for the mice, but a puzzle remained. What made these non-lethal bacterial colonies suddenly so potent? Griffith and his colleagues pondered and believed they had stumbled across a foundational truth. One that they would call the transforming principle. These days, we understand what Griffith discovered was a process called horizontal gene transfer. It's a handy little trick some bacteria have up their goopy little sleeves that they can use for their benefit. They essentially share part of their genetic code with other bacteria around them. In the case of Streptococcus pneumoniae, the less diseasy bacteria was able to grab part of the genetic code from the heat-killed bacteria, the part that makes it able to cause disease. This jumping of genetics back and forth among bacteria is one reason why some of them have been able to adapt to antibiotics, and antibiotic resistance is a superpower for bacteria. But it's a bit of a supervillain for us humans. In 2019, nearly 5 million people were thought to have died due to antimicrobial-resistant infections. Although a little frightening, this bacterial superpower is fascinating. We tend to think that our DNA is our own and and nobody else's. Perhaps single-celled bacteria are the only exception to this rule. Or are they? You're listening to Nice Genes, where we get our grubby little bacteria-covered fingers all over some of the most exciting stories about science and genomics, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, purveyor of the weird and wonderful. Horizontal gene transfer sounds like a term from a zany sci-fi film. Or maybe some kind of a dance move, something like the cha-cha slide, Slide but like, real small. Slide to the left. Most of us have a general sense of how our genetics mix to create, well, new life. (laughs) Haven't had that convo yet with your kiddos? Science is speed to you, my friends. Horizontal gene transfer is where different organisms swap or outright burgle bits of DNA from each other. Here's a thought. Nearly a tenth of your genome contains snippets of viral DNA from ancient infections acquired from this gene swiping. You're living proof of genetic robbery. All right, everybody, I'm not going to repeat myself. Put your genes in the bag. On the surface, it seems like this process is restricted to the minuscule molecular world of bacteria and viruses. But I wanted to see if there are any multicellular fugitives out there.
2: Wow, um, what a question. So, so I spoke I with Dr. Anna Klompen, and Institute I'm an NSF fellow and a postdoctoral program. researcher at Stowers Institute for Medical Research.
1: She's a specialist in understanding in toxins like and toxinology, venoms. Toxinology, toxicology, venomology. What, what's the difference?
2: Yeah, so a toxin is some sort of substance, usually a singular substance. Some amount causes some sort of physiological harm. For example, water can be toxic if it's at really, really high levels. Venoms are a suite of toxins, so many, many toxins, that have to be injected into a target animal. So it's something one animal produces a bunch of and then injects them, be it with fangs, spines, um, or stinging cells, as we'll talk about later.
1: Anna is hooked on understanding the molecular secrets that are entirely new to science. When
2: I was very young,
1: I was
2: just really enthralled by this idea of discovering something new that maybe no one else has heard of before or learned before.
1: That drive took her to a squishy academic niche. So my initial kind of obsession was deep sea
2: and anything with the deep sea. And so when I was reading and just looking up all these different books and doing like school projects on deep sea, I, of course, came across jellyfish. There's just this beauty to them that I think you can be pretty attracted to them unless you've had a very terrible experience. And then I learned about venoms. So animals that have completely manipulated building their own toxic weaponry and using that for a very specific task. And jellyfish, of course, I think most people know jellyfish sting. This is kind of a common knowledge thing, if not at least a safety thing that you learn if you go to the beach or interact with these animals. But we didn't really know what jellyfish stings looked like. And as soon as I really got hooked on that, um, I didn't really ever stop.
1: I'm curious, do you do you know how many species of jellyfish there are?
2: Yeah, okay. So this group that I refer to, the, the Phyla cnidaria, which is this group that includes jellyfish and all their relatives, so sea anemones, corals, and this group of parasitic nidarians as well, um, that's estimated to be about 13,000 species. Wow. The sea anemones and corals, that has probably about seven, eight thousand different species, I want to say. This parasitic group has probably about 2,000 species. Um, And then this other group called the medusazones, which is really where I've spent a lot of my time. So medusa, another um, word for jellyfish. So this is the group that either have or once had in evolutionary time is expected a jellyfish stage. So this this, um, floating pelagic stage.
1: So let's dive into the stinging. How... Do they sting? what are, What is it about these stinging cells? How do they work?
2: Jellyfish in general, their venom system is really, really interesting because it's not like many other venomous animals, so snakes, scorpions, insects, we're thinking fangs, We're thinking stingers. Jellyfish and their relatives have a decentralized venom system, we like to say. So it's actually dispersed all over their bodies through these stinging cells that are able to uh, synthesize a uh, toxin mixture. And then fire toxin mixture. In these stinging cells, it's these really complex structures called nidae. So you can think of nidae as having this ovular capsule. Attached to that capsule is going to be this thread-like structure called a tubule, and it's wrapped really, really tightly within this capsule. And that's how stinging cells are initially made and then moved around the body, usually on the tentacles of a jellyfish. And then once uh, they make contact with a predator or a target item, and, or they have some sort of chemical cue as well, then what'll happen is that tubule structure will rapidly fire out very, very quickly from this actual capsule due to this really high osmotic pressure. Um, so it actually punctures through the whatever the target is, and then it's hollow. So inside, it's actually averting out, and as it averts out, this mixture of toxins, this venom, gets deployed right into the bloodstream of that target animal. They're even really thinner than the thickness of a sheet of printer paper. I think you can normally fit probably five or eight stinging cells in the thickness of that
1: what can be um the impact on an organism like i know that there are some cases for some jellyfish that you can actually like you can have impacts on your heart like i don't yes. know if i'm making that right um so what might this like if i was if i was not a full human and i was just swimming around and i was a, a tiny fish <laughs> what what might that impact be on
2: my body So this this suite of toxins, these venoms can act either on their own or together with other things, and they have kind of very specific molecular functions. So some of them might cause pores, so pore-forming toxins. So they might puncture through specific cells and just make them kind of explode. Mm -hmm. Um, They might be neurotoxic, so they actually either bind or otherwise inhibit different ion channels for different things. Um, And they also can just be proteolytic, so just general enzymes that are causing some sort of detriment. So in terms of a sting for a human, depending on what kind of suite of toxins are in there, you might get a rash, burning sensation, pain certainly, Um, But in really extreme cases, you might have an allergic reaction and what's similar to allergic reaction. So you're going to have some breathing problems, um, really intense sweating. There's potential for you to certainly go to the hospital for a long period of time. Now what you were talking about too, so um, if we think of the most extreme stings, uh, and those are from these different suite of symptoms that you get from box jellyfish. So box jellyfish are a group of jellies. So one species of these box jellyfish called the Australian box jellyfish are often regaled as the most venomous animal on the planet towards humans because if you get a large enough sting from this animal, you're going to be dead in three to five minutes because the most dominant toxins in their venoms for one reason or another go right for your heart. One set of them pauses your heart, so essentially keeps it from locking it in a contracted state. And then the next suite of toxins actually puncture holes and essentially make all the rest of your heart
1: non-functional. Oh, no. I love me some jellies. I've got one tattooed on my foot. Believe me when I say that jellies are fascinating. And their unique stinging structures are incredibly useful to them for both defense and catching prey. With such a unique trait developed over millions of years of evolution, it's invaluable for keeping them alive. But for some enterprising pursuers, a jelly's ability is a boon worth the risk.
0: I'm currently at Woodman Point Regional Park near Perth, Australia. That's Dr. Jessica Goodhart, an expert in... Let's say Fred or Gary, as maybe I I would go with just the the snail reference. Fred's a nudibranch, or better known as a sea slug. Let's say Fred would essentially identify a prey, let's say anemone or hydroid or other type of cnidarian that they're interested in eating. They get this sort of whiff of some sort of chemical that leads them to this anemone, let's say. And what they'll first do is use their oral tentacles, which are this sort of sensory structure just above their mouths, and try and figure out if this is actually the prey that they're looking for. In that process, what often happens is the pneumaticists fire from the cnidarians. Blimey. Fred then gets sort of taken aback by these firing pneumaticists, going, Oh wait, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I wanna do this. Is this really how I'm gonna how I'm gonna go about my day? Hey. And so they'll kind of probe around and find a good spot. And once they find a good spot, they'll start attaching. So they'll attach with their mouths, and their radula kind of comes out and scrapes off bits from where their mouths are attached to this anemone. In digesting that material, they ingest whole, undischarged or unfired stinging cells. And... They move them all the way into what we call a nida sac, which is a muscular sac at the very tips. And that's where these nematocysts are stored, and they store them until they use them for defense. So this is a way for these animals to defend themselves from being preyed upon themselves. Fred, in this case, will have these sort of, this sort of armory of weapons um, in the tips of these cerata, orient those nematocysts towards whatever is bothering it. Jellyfish or anemones, Sea slugs like Fred love to hijack their stinging cells. Exactly, I like to think of them like little
1: pirates.
2: (laughs) I just want to say everyone that always likes to say, oh, jellyfish don't have brains. Um, If they are such simple animals, many others have taken the time to learn how to steal their secrets in a way to use themselves. Clearly, I think that demonstrates that these are just wonderful animals that are being taken advantage of. So I just want to throw that (laughs) out there. Yes, just like hashtag justice for jellies, you know? I I think, one, they've been around for so long already, but at the very least that other animals are stealing their innovations. Because they are just so good at what they
0: did.
1: These colorful ocean pirates can get up to a lot
0: more than your typical Cnidarian mugging. Uh, Trying to find some sea slugs here. It's a bit of a rocky coast. There's a rocky outcropping here where people tend to fish from. But there's a lot of rubble near the base of those big rocks that... Might be flippable and potentially could have some sea slugs there. So, so we're here looking for it today. It's yeah, crazy. there are other nudibranchs that steal chemicals from their prey. So there's some that feed on say sponges or other um, chemically defended invertebrates, and they steal those chemicals and sort of store them at the end at the edges of their body, uh, also for defense. But they sometimes steal those chemicals and then sort of use them to create a new chemical that they use for defense. Um, in other cases, there are some nudibranchs that steal nematocysts, but also are able to take uh, symbionts from corals uh, that the corals have sequestered and sort of a secondary theft where the corals create their symbiosis and then the nudibranchs can steal those symbionts. Those are both used in terms of to create food for for the animals. And they have these really beautiful, what we call parapodia or sort of flaps of tissue that they can open so that they can gather sunlight, essentially.
1: Jellyfish are an example of animals that have an excellent ability to deal with predators. And nudibranchs? Well, they're taking notes. And nidocytes. But how exactly are they doing it? Are they just packaging jelly's stinging cells or going so far as to snag their DNA? How that's done, the mechanism of how that works, I'm
2: pretty sure is not really well- Elucidated from other studies, um, I think it's getting much better in nudibranchs, um, which I'm hoping Jessica can talk more about.
0: That's something that I'm working to investigate: is essentially how they're able to identify nematocysts and sort of take them up because they're stored intracellularly, so inside of cells, and maintain their function essentially rather than destroying them. We know for sure, or we're fairly confident, I would say that there's no transfer happening. And that's mostly because there's no sort of genes or genome that comes with the nematocyst. Now that's in contrast to things like chloroplasts, which do have their own um, internal genome. And that's in contrast to say a symbiont, which also has its own genome. And so the nudibranchs have to essentially maintain their function all on their own. How they do it, I would love to know.
1: So while folks like Dr. Klompen and Dr. Goodhart look into that, let's turn to another species doing some stealthy DNA stealing.
0: In. Go in and I'll you upon my violin.
1: You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it. Brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host, and we want to get more people to listen to the genomic stories that are shaping our world. So if you like nice genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Help us commandeer the podcast feeds by horizontally transferring the show to your friends. Okay. I did my PhD on, on the scent rats, of another species with this gene gobbling ability. I see it now. I my see search it. took me to Switzerland yeah,
3: five o'clock, to
1: meet Dr. Ted Turlings.
3: A professor at the University of Neuchâtel, a tiny university in the French speaking part of Switzerland, and I am uh, the chair of a laboratory of chemical ecology here.
1: Dr. Turling's work looks at the relationship between insects and plants. A lot of it focuses on agriculture in settings where pests are decimating crops. One day he was visiting China for a conference and decided to pop down to meet an old colleague of his in the lab of one, Professor Zhang.
3: And they invited me to give a presentation about our work.
1: But after the presentation, they pulled him aside to ask his opinion on a project they'd been working on.
3: So they are studying uh, the white fly. They showed me the results of this particular study.
1: The lab was working with white flies, a pretty common crop pest.
3: So white flies are tiny, tiny little insects that uh, are not flies. They're actually more similar to aphids. They are tiny, but they occur in the millions in certain fields and they suck out the juices out of plants.
1: Despite their humble appearance, they can be quite destructive.
3: What they do is they also transmit viruses and fungal pathogens, and that can cause tremendous uh, losses in crops yearly.
1: Do you have a sense of the the scale of this impact? Like how, how much food or um, agricultural waste there is because of these insects.
3: Well, the the numbers are always expressed in main money, which doesn't make that much sense because it's of course a, a food security problem. But it's people are talking about at least 20 billion dollars worth oh, per wow. year that is that is lost <laughs> I mean, but it's just really worldwide huh? so this goes every continent everywhere it's in the top 10 of uh, insect pests uh, worldwide and it's an invasive pest uh, at least for north america i know that it only appeared in the early 1800s was the first time it was there most likely came from Asia.
1: But Dr. Jung's team had revealed what might have been making these little white bugs so effective.
3: And they started looking at the genome of this uh, white fly. And they looked for genes that are, allow these white flies to deal with plant toxins. So these are defense compounds stored in many plants. There's a sugar attached to the molecule when it's stored inside the plant. But as soon as you take a bite, or as an insect take a bite out of a plant, then uh, there are enzymes liberated, and then the phenolic compounds will become toxic. But in this case, this particular gene that is in this white flies, shows a, uh, a certain sequence to detoxify certain compounds. They looked for that same gene then in other organisms, and the only place they found it was in plants. So no other insect or animal or bacterium or whatever had that same gene. So this is when they started thinking, hey, this gene must have been derived at some time from plants. Yeah, obviously when I saw their first results, I got extremely excited about it because it did show very convincingly that there was this gene transferred from plant to insect and I had not seen any other evidence for any transfer from plant to insect.
1: mentioned earlier that perhaps there might be a virus involved like how does this gene transfer happen
3: that is still remains a big mystery and i don't want to claim that we have any idea about that Uh, but it seems like a very logical route viruses are are basically manipulating the genome of organisms and they do transfer certain fractions and parts of genes from into their hosts as well so Somehow, during their manipulation of the plant, something happens that is extremely rare, but basically unlimited time for it to occur, plus billions of white flies, and basically themselves are infected with viruses that have no negative impact on the, on the white flies themselves. But while they're feeding, the viruses are the most likely route through which this horizontal treat transfer may have occurred, I mean, we definitely don't know how it happened, and, and we do know that it's most likely happened more than 35 million years ago. So they went through a whole series of, of different experiments to definitely show that this gene was in the white flies and that it was functional. But, uh, like I said, we don't—we really have no idea what what happened.
1: Okay. I hope I'm not the only one humming with curiosity over these clever white flies. How do they do it? No. me? Geeking out aside, these flies can be devastating to plants and crops. And therefore, hello, people too. Professor Zhang and his colleagues wondered if they could use that same genetic trick to their advantage.
3: The final step of this research, and that's the most exciting step of it, is they uh, genetically modified tomato plants to produce this double-stranded RNA. So they had these tomato plants that were able to produce the double-stranded RNA and as soon as then the white flies are feeding on that, they ingest the RNA. That interferes with the gene that we're talking about. And then they observed that within three days, all of the white flies were dead.
1: Oh, how the tables had turned! The modified tomatoes were effective against the white flies. The enhanced enzyme from the tomatoes exclusively targeted the dna of the white flies using their own trick against
0: them
3: so that is the ideal way of controlling this pest a hundred percent mortality and something that they would have an extremely hard time adapting to because uh, developing resistance to genetically modified tomato plants would be very very difficult the really charming part about this is that it will have no impact on any other insect because no other insect carries that gene but still very controversial
1: scientifically uh, that's cool but it does raise a question about what we as a society are comfortable with the conversation around modifying the genetics of foods that's a sticky one yeah actually i'd love to ask you about sort of genetically modified organisms because this is I know as a scientist myself i I think about this question a lot and it can be so controversial so like how do you think about it within the context of this and your work
3: yeah i've i've been less and less careful about it and saying that this sounds uh, it's becoming more and more a technique that i think will have to be adopted to find the uh, ideal ways to uh, to ensure food security uh, and actually get rid of uh, of some practices that are extremely extremely damaging to the environment and to, to human health. Uh, one of the other concerns is also that, uh, that these genes might spread from, uh, from a crop to wild plants and that's, uh, that's a legitimate concern. And our model plant is, is maize, the, the plant that we our colleagues in China work with are tomatoes. So maize originates from Mexico. So there, I would be a bit more careful. The, the wild plant is called triosinte. That could jump from maize to triosinte, if that's desired or not. It's yeah, yeah, it's a bit questionable. You also, I think, you have to keep in mind the alternative, right? So right now, that the alternative is using tons of pesticides.
1: I, I would love to to get a little bit about your vision for the future. I mean, you you hinted at this. We are dealing with climate change, right? That is sort of it, it is changing what agriculture looks like in this space, it will definitely impact food security. So what do you feel would be, I mean, what what do you hope to see for the future of agriculture um, to, to manage this sort of like compounding threats? of climate change?
3: Yeah, I, I think science has a lot to offer. Uh, I would uh, highly recommend that governments invest more into that, uh, looking for alternatives to these these pesticides and then also looking for ways to deal with these traumatic changes that are coming or already are there now, as we see again this summer, where, where the crops are, are also going to get lost in many areas because of uh, of climate change and heat in particular right now genetically modifying them with genes that uh, that allow for drought tolerance or for heat tolerance uh, they already have been discovered now they need to be introduced into important crops and that's uh, that's one other way to go another ways to go there are all kinds of other researchers that have super interesting ideas and and a uh, very advanced technologies that could be used to, in agriculture, uh, to, to protect crops without having to use these extremely harmful uh, chemicals.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Trillings. This was very interesting. Yeah,
3: it was great to talk to you. It was really fun.
1: You know, PodFam, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, we're discovering so much. And it's exciting to think about where we'll be even 10 years from now. And I guess these kind of questions just seem extra urgent. It's really exciting to to sort of hear about the discoveries and sort of how those discoveries are being thought of within the context of like supporting global foods into the future as the self-appointed genomic sheriff for this episode i'd say we caught our gene thief the white
3: fly
0: you're gonna be put behind the bars of a double helix for the
3: rest of your life white fly you best get comfortable all 18
2: days of them.
1: But there are so many of these little guys, they could be buzzing around your neighborhood garden right now. Understanding horizontal gene transfer can illuminate a secret genomic tool at our disposal. But if and how and when to deploy it, well, those aren't questions to be taken lightly. Will we be accomplices in the gene stealing? Or lock it down?
0: I'm feeling high when I'm low. I need more
1: Our guest for today was toxicologist Dr. Anna Klompen from the Stowers Institute, Dr. Jessica Goodhart with the American Museum of Natural History and Institute of Comparative Genomics, and Dr. Ted Turlings from the University of Neuchâtel. I also wanted to acknowledge the laboratory of Professor You Jin Zhang, Department of Plant Protection, Institute of Vegetables and Flowers, Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences in Beijing. You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. Share us with your friends and leave us a review. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to GenomeBC. And if you're listening with kiddos or you're a teacher looking to spice up your lessons, we have learn-along activity sheets added to the show description for each episode. If this episode was your tomato jam, you'll love our next one. We'll be peeling back the truth of one of our favorite bright yellow treats
0: and this guy was collecting all of these different types of bananas he had a friend in the uk called barclay and barclay was an amateur plant hunter this guy sent barclay two bananas two suckers unfortunately barclay didn't last much longer than that his family decided they would liquidate the estates and they sold these two suckers one apparently went to Europe. Nobody knows what happened to that with the banana.
1: Has anyone gone on a search to try to find the missing other sucker of the other plant? Like, <laughs> Has anyone tried <laughs> to track this thing down?
0: Um, I, I had a, a, a very brief attempt. Oh. Yeah, That's right.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening, fellow pirates. And I'll be seeing you later.